You're walking down the path to your house. It's dark. Suddenly, someone jumps out of the bushes, pokes a gun in your ribs, and says, you have one minute to tell me what is the most important question in the world. Otherwise, I'm going to pull the trigger. So what would you say is the most important question in the world? And you only have 60 seconds to think about it and to reply. The subject of picking the most important is quite popular. Time magazine picks the most important person in the world from their perspective each year. People magazine picks the 50 most beautiful people in the world each year. Um, Forbes magazine picks the 200 top most important companies in the world each year. Mental Floss magazine, you've probably never heard of Mental Floss, <laughs> but Mental Floss magazine in their November-December 2004 attracted attention by the headlines on the cover, the 25 most important questions in the universe. And when I was reading that, I thought, wow, not just in the world, but the universe. So what would you think of the most important questions in the universe? The first question on their list was, um, why are number two pencils so popular? <laughs> why are number two pencils so popular? And I thought, w what's that all about? You know, you know what a number two pencil is? The number one, it's graded by the hardness of the lead, and one is the softest and so soft you, you can only kind of draw with it, and then two is, is the next one up until it gets so hard, hard you can't write anything with it um, at all. Another question on their list caught my eye. Can a pregnant woman drive in the carpool lane? <laughs> Can a pregnant woman drive in the carpool lane? In 1987, a pregnant California woman, five months pregnant, was ticketed by the highway patrol for riding without someone else, and she took it to court and to a jury, and she claimed that her five-month-old fetus was a baby, not born yet, so that meant there were two people in the car, and the jury agreed with her and uh, dismissed the case. The highway patrol were not happy because they said, that means any woman can stuff a pillow up their, up their dress and pretend they're pregnant, and we won't be able to do anything um, about it. But I leave you in a frenzy of anticipation. What is the most important question in the world? Not what time says or mental floss. What does the Bible say? What is the most important question in the world? Because this really is a matter of life and death, and if we don't know it and don't know how to answer it, then it might be the death of us rather than the, the life of us. Robert Ingersoll, one of the most well-known atheists of the 19th century, gave the oration at his brother's funeral. Let's see if we can get any clue as to what this question is from some of the remarks that he made at his brother's funeral, and I quote, while yet in love with life and raptured with the world, he, that's his brother, passed into silence and pathetic dust. Yet after all, it may be best just in the happiest, sunniest hour of all the voyage, while eager winds are kissing every sail, to dash against the unseen rock, and in an instant hear the billows roar above the sunken ship. For whether in mid-sea mid or among the breakers of the farther shore, a wreck at last must mark the end of each and all. 
What a way to think of life. A wreck is going to mark the end of all of us. And every life, no matter if it's every hour, is rich with love. And every moment jeweled with a joy will, at its close, become a tragedy. Sad and deep and dark as can be woven of the warp and woof of mystery and death. And he concluded, life is a narrow veil between the cold and barren peaks of two eternities. We strive in vain to look beyond the heights. We cry aloud, and the only answer is the echo of our wailing cry. Why even bother to live? If that's all that life is about, why even be here? So, the most important question in all the world is, what is the purpose of life? Why are we here? Are we just here to be born, grow up, marry, have kids, earn an income, and die? Why are we here? Human beings are incurably religious. 85% of the world's population belongs to some religion. Only 15% disavow God. Communism has tried to stamp out religion. Communist China has tried to stamp out religion. It hasn't worked. There seems to be something within the breast of human beings that wants to know there's something more than what's in this life. The majority of the world wants to believe there's a purpose in life. I want you to look at a clip from a popular TV program, Everybody Loves Raymond, um, to see how Hollywood answers this question of what is the purpose of life. Raymond, the father, is coming into his daughter's bedroom. He thinks she's asked a question about sex. What is sex? So he's come all prepared to, to answer that question. Take a look. <laughs> um, 
gonna want us here? Yeah, why? <laughs> why are we here, Daddy? Yeah, I heard you. I heard you. <laughs> you don't want to talk about sex? <laughs> <laughs> okay, alright. Okay, you really want to know why God wants us here first? That's a good question. You see, God is up in heaven, and, well, honey, it's very crowded up there. <laughs> If you watch the rest of the clip, he goes downstairs and has this big discussion with his wife and his parents. And the sadness is that they don't come to any conclusion or any answer at the end, which shows the bankruptcy of Hollywood when it's trying to deal with the ultimate issues of, uh, of life. If you're a follower of Islam, the way you answer that question is by striving to live a good life. Purpose of life is to be good and to live the way that God wants you to do. The Quran states clearly that salvation is focused on strivings and work. And I quote, in the day of judgment, they whose balances shall be heavy with good works shall be happy, but they whose balances shall be light are those who shall lose their souls and shall remain in hell forever. If you follow the Jewish religion, ethical behavior is important and is what commends you before God, following the law, doing everything that God asks you to do. If you're a Buddhist, salvation and the purpose of life is to follow the eightfold path of enlightenment of Buddhism. And I could go on and on with the different uh, religions. And I brought some kind of object lessons to help illustrate. It's as if you have a frame. And every religion has, has their frame. And I've just brought one frame, but there's small frames, there's bigger frames, there's ornate frames, there's silver frames. There's many, many different kinds of frame. And each religion has their own frame. Now, apart from Christianity, the frame is actually empty. Because Christianity, let me put this up here, and what is one of the things that's unique about Christianity is that Christianity has a picture in its frame. And it's a picture of God. 
It's a picture of Jesus Christ. And Christianity is the only religion that teaches that a God came down to this earth in human flesh and died and gave his life. Christianity is the only religion that teaches that you must follow a person, that you are, you are saved by a person, Jesus Christ. None of the other religions teach that at all. Every other religion says that you have to do something as part of the purpose of life. Christianity teaches that there's nothing that you have to do as far as salvation is concerned. But we still haven't answered the question fully. What are we here for? If you go over to the Bible, and you go to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 43, and verse 43, and, and starting with, uh, with verse 5, God is talking through Isaiah, and he says, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. And then verse 7, he says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So God is saying that the reason he made you, each one of us in this room, is for his glory. And if you turn over just a couple more chapters to chapter 60 and look at verse 21, you hear God saying, Then will all your people be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor, as the NIV puts it, or the New American Standard Bible says, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. So the purpose for which we're here, and we could give a lot more texts, is not to live for ourselves, but the reason we are here is to glorify God. In what, and we'll unpack that as we go through that, because that's the next question, is what do we mean to glorify God? The 17th century Westminster Confession of Faith asks, what is the purpose of man? And then it answers the question. It says, the chief end of man is to glorify God, and enjoy him forever. And if you turn over to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and go to Revelation 4, 4 and 5 is that great worship scene, that great description of what it's like to worship before God. And just by an aside, one of the criticisms that's sometimes made about praise um, music is there's a lot of repetition in it. Well, you have the four beasts before the throne, and it says they say, holy, 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 it, for all the time, continuously, night and day, they're saying, holy, holy, holy. Well, I don't know much more repetition than that to say that. And that's part of the worship scene in heaven. But look at chapter 4 and verse 11. You have the 24 elders before the throne, and they fall before God, cast their crowns before him. And they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory. And we've been singing about that in our songs here. And honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they were created, and have their being. So they're giving God the glory. You created us so that you would receive glory. You would see praise for the kind of person that, uh, that, that you are. Now, it comes back to the question again, so how do we glorify God? We, 
glorify God when we come together and praise, as we've been doing today, and we praise God and we pray. But you're not doing that during the week. You're not every moment of your life singing the doxology and singing praise songs. This is one aspect of praising God. There is something a lot deeper of what it means to give God glory. And if you go back to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis, and the scene that, uh, that you are very familiar with in Genesis chapter 1 and uh, verses uh, 26 and 27. And I'm going to read from the New Living Translation because it's gender inclusive and um, the Bible was very patriarchal when it was written. And uh, I like the way the New Living Translation puts this. Then God said, let us make people in our image to be like ourselves. There will be masters over all life, the fish in the sea, the birds in the sea, sky, and all the livestock, wild animals and small animals. So God created people in his own image. God patterned them after himself. Male and female, he created them. So the Bible tells us right in the beginning that you and I were created in the image of God. We were created to be like God. We were created to, to multiply and have children and families in the original plan as God created and, and made, uh, made all things. And so we, we start, as, as we go on this journey, we find that to be like God, to give him praise and glory. Jesus explains very clearly how we do that in Matthew 22, in that great answer when he was asked which was the greatest of all, of all the laws in the Ten Commandments. In Matthew 22 and verse 37, and you know this again so well, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the way that we give glory to God, the way that we give praise to God, is how we love each other. And it's not just how we love each other, it's how we love the unlovely. Now, in our scripture, or in our Bible study during Sabbath school, and Pastor Gary was going through Our Father, one of the texts he read, we read, was how God gives the Son to the just and the unjust. And if we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we find how Jesus tells us that we're to pray for our enemies. We're to love the unlovely. And the test of being a Christian, the test of giving praise to God, is not when everyone is nice to you. The test of being a Christian is when people are not nice to you. It's easy to smile when the sun is shining and the money is coming in and your children are getting straight A's and your wife is telling you how wonderful you are, your husband is praising your cooking and so on. That's wonderful to live that way. But when your kids start getting D's, when they're playing truancy, when you get a bill from the IRS that you had underpaid your income tax, when your roof leaks and collapses and you find you've not been up to date on your insurance, when you get fired unjustly from your job, it's at those times, and all of you can relate to that, that the test of whether you're a true Christian or not comes out. And the world doesn't care when they look at us to see how well we're getting on. What they want to look at is when does conflict come in and differences come in, how do we relate to each other? And love is only really expressed in community. You cannot be a solo player in love. 
So when churches divide, when churches split, that's a terrible, terrible indictment on people giving, they're not giving glory to God. And it's when churches work through conflict, when churches, when families work through difficulties, when you work through in the job, through unjust, unkind, unfair, and you come out still smiling, and the world looks at that and says, wow, how can that be? Why is that? I'd like to learn more about that. And that's how we give praise and glory to God. That's how we give honor to his name. Now, I would like to submit that that is not easy at all. Because we all have this human nature, as we saw last night, that doesn't want to take responsibility. And we want to blame the situation on someone else. And it only comes as we take time with this God who gave his line for us. I know of no other way to talk to him, to have him talk back to us, to listen to him. As it says in Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, to use Newman's paraphrase, fallen, miserable, evil, Christ came, came and died and gave his life that we might live. This is why this, this second frame, you see the, the, the frame of, of the Muslims and, and the Jews and the Buddhists have nothing in there to draw, no person, no relationships. But the frame of the Christian is filled with Jesus. But now there's a difficulty that can come in in all of this if we are not careful. If we have not recognized all of these issues. There's another frame. And Adventists, unfortunately, too many of us have fallen into this frame. Now, what do you see there? Where is the picture? The picture is very small. What is dominating this frame? You've got the frame and you've got this huge mat. Now, now pictures, when they're framed, often have a mat. But the mat is a very small portion of the picture. It's just there to set the picture off and make it look better. But Adventism, too much of that, and what do I mean by this? We have exalted the doctrines to the place where they have become the mat and have obscured Jesus Christ. And I can prove that very simply by asking this question. When someone who's not an Adventist is asked if they know anything about Adventists, and what's the first thing that they think about Adventists, do they come to this picture? Do they say, oh, you're the people that love Jesus. You're the people that are kind and gracious and out there serving in the community. No, they come to this picture. And they start talking about this part. Oh, you're the people that worship on, on that Saturday, you know, the seventh day. Uh, you're the people that don't uh, eat pork. Uh, you're, you're the people that have those, you know, health institutions. And if they've been around very traditional Adventists, you're the people that don't wear jewelry and so on and so on. And so what's happened is we're not glorifying God in this frame. And the devil is so cunning because there's nothing wrong with the doctrines. The 28 doctrines we have are great and wonderful. But when they become the emphasis, when they become what we talk about, when they become what we give mostly in Bible studies and Jesus, oh, we, we put Jesus in there. I mean, Jesus is here too. I haven't left him out. But it's all a matter of emphasis and where we go and how we give glory to God. And this picture is not giving glory to God where this picture is. Now, some people get very nervous when I talk this way because uh, they've not perhaps had, had sermons that way. And you must remember that, that these doctrines, 
you know, I believe God gave them to us, and if they are understood in the light of the cross, every doctrine should tell me something about Jesus. If it's not telling me something about Jesus, then it's sterile and dry, and it's not helpful um, at all. And in an attempt to do this, I rewrote some of the doctrines of the Adventist church. (laughs) The 13 that are in the church manual, I didn't take the 28, the 13 that ask you the questions about um, for baptismal candidates that are kind of the summary of the full. And I took them all and I, I worked very hard to put the cross and Jesus into every one of them. And if you're curious, you can go to our website, lookingforachurch.org, and you'll see them um, listed there. I sent them to my conference president and said, I want the conference committee to vote this as the official statement of belief for Damascus Grace when I was pastoring in the Potomac Conference. And he said, no, he said, only the church in general conference session can do that. And he said, why don't you send it to the seminary and to the GC and see what they say? So I sent it to five of the leading brethren in our church, two bothered to answer, the other three never replied. And both of them said, we, we know that there are many actually different writings of the 13 around the world. You have not, you're not the first one to have done this. Many churches and pastors have done this. And secondly, these two that responded said, we've seen nothing in what you've written that's denied the cardinal truths of the Adventist church. So that was my, my attempt to take what we have here Great and wonderful as as it is. I mean, the state of the dead is a marvelous doctrine. But what is it really saying about Jesus? If you understand it correctly, it's the greatest antidote to atheism there is. Because many people have become atheists because of hell. And they can't imagine a God of love consigning people to suffer for all eternity. And the Adventist view of the state of the dead turns that picture around. But in most of the Bible studies I've seen, it doesn't bring out that picture of God. It's just, it's what the text says, you know, we sleep and, and until the resurrection, um, etc. And yet if we're going to give glory to God, the only way we give glory to God is by lifting up Jesus Christ. And when we lift him up, then in our lives, in our actions, in our relationships, we start to reflect God's love who gives his son and his reign and his blessings to everyone regardless. And God wants us to treat the difficult people. And right now in your mind, think of some difficult person in your life, your next door neighbor or at work or relative or whoever it might be, and start asking the question, how do I love them better? How do I reflect the love of Jesus to them better? And the only way you can do it, you can't do it in yourself, is to come to the foot of the cross and take that time with our Savior, who while we were still sinners, while we were still miserable, while we were still people that didn't love God, came to this world to die and give his life, a love that we're going to examine for all eternity and never fully understand and comprehend how the God of the universe could subject himself to become one of his, of his creatures. There's a wonderful story that illustrates this so well of how the life The Christian life lived without fear can have a huge impact. Boris Kornfeld was a Jewish doctor, an artist communist, an atheist, who got caught up in Stalin's purges when Stalin was running Russia and was sent to a concentration camp up in Siberia. Because he was a doctor, he lived a little better than the other people there because people needed medical service and they didn't have many doctors there. 
one, one day he was working on a man who turned out to be a Christian. And this man told him about Jesus. And he sensed something different in this person's life. And he listened to what he had to say. And then he watched how this man lived amongst the, the other prisoners. And one day when he was suturing up a stab wound of one of the prison guards, he suddenly was tempted to tie the suture in such a way that after the man left, it would come undone and, he, and his artery, it was a bad stab wound, would bleed to death. And while he was tempted to do that, suddenly the Lord's Prayer, where this Christian had taught him, came into his mind. Father, forgive them their sins. Father, forgive my sins as I forgive those who sinned against me. And suddenly he, he realizes, I can't do that. It doesn't matter how terrible this prison guard is. He's still one of God's children. And so he tied it up properly. And then a few days later, he caught one of the orderlies, prison orderlies, uh, stealing food from one of the patients. Food, of course, was in short supply. So he reported him to the camp commandant, who put this orderly in solitary confinement for three days. But when he came out, Boris Kornfeld knew that he would get his revenge and that he would probably try and do himself some harm. So he started sleeping in the, um, in the hospital and taking cat naps. But as he told other people that was recorded at that time, a peace came over his life. And suddenly he wasn't afraid anymore. In fact, he said, I became the freest man in all Russia because I trusted in Jesus Christ. And it didn't really matter what would happen. A patient came into his operating room who was, had cancer of the intestines. And he was operating and working on this, on this patient. And the pa patient was in and out, delirious with the anesthetic and at times. But he started telling this patient about Jesus Christ and his faith and the peace and joy that he had given to him. And the patient didn't hear that much, but he heard some of it. And he went, was sent back to his room. And the next morning, he heard a great commotion in the hospital. Boris Kornfeld had been bludgeoned to death, his skull beaten in during the night. And he was dead. But that patient, who had listened to just a few words he could tell him, remembered. It changed his life. He survived that concentration camp, left Russia. And you know him today as Alexander Solzhenitsyn one of the greatest writers of the 20th century who wrote the book, The Gulag Archipelago, that shed so much light on Stalin's um, camps. Think of what this doctor in this obscure prison did because he didn't have revenge. He loved everyone that he could find. He didn't have that much knowledge about Christ. You don't have to have that much knowledge. All you have to have is a commitment and a will and then God will start to do the rest. And he glorified God. He gave glory to God in that camp. And there was fruit because of it. Are you living for God's glory? Is your life making a difference to someone else? It can and it will. If you will make this frame your center and not this frame. And then God will be glorified. He will come. And one day we won't have to worry about these things anymore will be in that heavenly home that God has prepared for us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, you're such a great God. The most important question in all the world is why are we here? And the answer to that question is we're here 
to give you glory. And I pray that as we leave this room and the lives that each of us lives, we will indeed be giving you glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.